believe it or not, uh, that's a line coined by, by uh, Robert Ripley uh, about 100 years ago. Uh, Robert Ripley was uh, primarily a cartoonist, but he was an explorer, a reporter, an adventurer, a collector uh, who traveled to about uh, 201 countries in 35 years seeking the odd, the unusual, the unexplained and maybe you've seen these cartoons or maybe you've read some of his books. I, I just pulled this one up. This is, this is a recent one. Did you know the California sushi roll was actually invented by a chef from Vancouver, Canada? I mean, why is it not called the Vancouver roll? But it's called the California roll. And then Russian Railway, Metro, and FIFA employees were issued smile training prior to hosting the 2018 FIFA World Cup. They had to train the people in Russia how to smile <laughs> before the World Cup. So, so the, you know, this is just, that's, a, that's kind of a tame one, you know. Their, their cartoons and their books, you know, they're, they're filled with all kinds of unusual uh, facts and really unbelievable things. And if you've been on vacation, maybe you've been to one of their uh, auditoriums, is what they call them, where you go in and you can see all the kind of, you know, the, the two-headed goats and the one-eyed dog and, you know, all these really weird, crazy things that, that they've collected uh, from around the world. Um, believe it or not... Ripley's, believe it or not, is actually owned by Vancouver's Jimmy Patterson. <laughs> Did you know that? Yeah, and, and the Jim Patterson group also owns uh, Guinness World Records, just, just so you know. You see what you learn when you come to church? I mean, this is just life-changing stuff. I, I know, I know. But, but this whole Ripley's Believe It or Not thing is, is just kind of built around the weird and the bizarre and the unbelievable, things that are just too weird and too bizarre to be true, but are strange facts, unnatural realities, believe it or not, you know, that's the same category that many people would put the Bible in. The weird, the bizarre, the unbelievable. And the Bible is full of a lot of strange stories. You got like the stories of Adam and Eve. You got stories like Noah and the flood. Uh, the stories of the, of the plagues in Egypt with Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and all that stuff. And then you get into what we call the New Testament and there's angels and there's this virgin birth thing and there's people walking on water and you know feeding 5,000 people with just a small lunch and blind people beginning to see and lame people beginning to walk and people rising from the dead, crazy stuff. And some people get totally hung up on those stories. They think, you know, they're just too weird. They're just too bizarre. It's just unbelievable. But you know, if that's what you get hung up on, you've missed the most unbelievable thing in the Bible. The most outrageous, unbelievable thing in the Bible isn't Jesus walking on the water or Lazarus being raised from the dead or even the idea that God created the heavens and the earth. The most outrageous thing in the Bible, the Ripley's believe it or not moment in scripture is this. And we could have picked a number of verses, but how about this one from Romans chapter four? But people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. 
You, you want an unbelievable moment in scripture, that's it. Now, there, there, there's a word there that, that's, that's kind of a big word that maybe we don't use very often, and it's that word righteous. Righteous simply means to be made right, to be made acceptable with God, to be good with God. You ever use that phrase, hey, we're good? We're good, you know, that's, are we good? We're good. Righteousness is saying, hey, you know what? Me and God are good. We're good. And it says that God forgives sinners, people who are wicked, people who are ungodly. And God declares the guilty innocent. He declares the guilty to be forgiven. And God actually treats bad people as if they were good people. You want something outrageous? You want something unbelievable? You want something scandalous? And that's it. That's Jesus, believe it or not. Well, how does that happen? How can God, who is perfect and holy and good, just consider guilty people as righteous or acceptable? Probably the best place in the Bible to help us understand how God does this is a portion of scripture uh, written by the prophet Isaiah. And this morning we're finishing up a series that we've called The Ancient Words of Salvation. And we've been looking into the, the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And this morning we're going to the most famous poem that Isaiah wrote that's recorded uh, in his book. It's a passage of scripture that's quoted something like 40 times in the New Testament and alluded another uh, to an, another 40 times, the most of any portion of the Old Testament. And it's the clearest prophecy about Jesus that we find in scripture. In fact, the passage we're gonna look at this morning has been called the Mount Everest of prophecy. It starts in Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, see, my servant will prosper. And, and that word prosper doesn't mean that the servant's gonna get rich. It means that, that he's gonna be successful. He's going to accomplish his mission. It says, my servant will prosper and he will be highly exalted. And that phrase, highly exalted, is the exact same Hebrew phrase that, that Isaiah used way back in Isaiah chapter six. Remember the first passage that we looked at in this series, Pastor Dallas preached on Isaiah uh, chapter six, where it says that Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the Lord high and lifted up or high and exalted and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And Isaiah takes that exact same phrase and he uses it here in Isaiah 52, basically saying, hey, you know what, that, that, that person that I saw in the temple, that glory that I saw in the temple, the same person that I saw there, that's the person I'm talking about here. The one who's high and lifted up, who's highly exalted. Then Isaiah dives right in. He says, but many were amazed when they saw him. Maybe your translation of scripture uses the word appalled. It might be a better word. They were appalled. They, they were shocked. They were sickened when they saw him. Why? Because his face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. I mean, what in the world is Isaiah talking about here? Who's Isaiah talking about? 
Then fast forwarding through history, the prophet declares, and he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence for they will see what they had not been told and they will understand what they'd not heard about. Isaiah says that there's gonna come a day when this person who was so badly beaten, this person who was so badly disfigured, he didn't even seem human, will be more glorious, will be more powerful, more famous than the most famous and powerful person in the world. Who's Isaiah talking about? But this person who will be preeminent begins in obscurity. Isaiah goes on to say, and it starts a a new chapter, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed this powerful arm? Isaiah is saying, nobody's gonna believe this. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Who's Isaiah talking about? You know, in so many respects, Jesus was just so ordinary, so human. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's, he's the son of God. He's the servant of the Lord. But he was born as a baby. He was born in a manger to a, to a peasant's teenage mother. And I don't know, I guess because I've been working on singing Christmas tree stuff, it's the hottest time of the year, you gotta work on singing Christmas tree stuff. You know, Again, you know, we kind of, I think we lose the, 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 the magic or the, 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 the mystery of, of the birth of Jesus, the son of God coming down and being born as, as a baby. I mean, it's not the way that you'd expect the most important history, a person in history to be born. He didn't have the, the typical indicators of success and significance. Significance. Uh, he didn't have the money. He didn't have the family connections. He didn't have the credentials. He didn't have the education. He didn't have the, the political influence. He didn't have, well, he didn't have the looks. He didn't look like anything extraordinary. There was, there was nothing about Jesus when you looked at him that separated him from any other human on the planet. I mean, he didn't walk around, despite some of the pictures you see, he didn't walk around with a halo over his head. You know, there wasn't this, this holy glow about him. In fact, the only time he glowed was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and the only people that saw that were, were Peter, James, and John, and Jesus said, you can't tell anybody about this. That was the only time he had a holy glow, He wasn't bigger, he wasn't stronger, he wasn't better looking. In fact, when Jesus showed up in his hometown, people are like, man, who does this guy think he is? I've known that guy since he was just a rug rat. I remember when he was just a kind of a a little kid running around with with, with a runny nose, you know, babysat him, I changed his diaper. It's just normal. And so verse three says he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief and we turned our backs on him and looked the other way and he was despised and we did not care. We didn't care about him. Despised means to, to be made light of, to be laughed at. We, we laughed at him. We didn't take him seriously. 
In fact, even when he began to do extraordinary things in his ministry by the power of God, and we saw the miracles and the healings and those supernatural feats, most people still couldn't get by the ordinariness of Jesus. In fact, the apostle John, who was one of Jesus' disciples, wrote this in in John chapter 12. He said, but despite all the miraculous signs Jesus has done, most of the people still did not believe in him. And this is exactly what the Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who's believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? You say, well, if he wasn't much to look at, at least he had muscles, had a powerful arm. I thought that would be funnier than it obviously was. You know, he had muscles. What's this, what's this powerful arm thing? I mean, did Jesus go around flexing? Was, was he one of these guys? You know, he was a carpenter or maybe even a, a stonemason. So, I mean, he was, you know, he's probably a, a physical working kind of guy. You know, maybe he did have some muscles. Is that what Isaiah's talking about here? Well, we're not familiar with the prophetic idioms. And so I think we miss what, what Isaiah is saying. Um, the powerful arm of the Lord doesn't mean that Jesus had big muscles. Now, now, he might have, but um, it actually has a very specific, definite meaning in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. Uh, the powerful arm of the Lord, the strong arm of the Lord, the, even the hand of the Lord is a poetic way of talking about how God steps into history to do something. It's talking about when God shows up on the scene, inserts himself into time and space to do something real, to do something specific, to do something concrete and powerful. Now, if the, if the prophet used the term like, you know, the, the eye of the Lord, uh, he'd be talking about God's knowledge. If he used a term like the mouth of the Lord, he'd be talking about teaching. But he uses this expression, the arm of the Lord. And so he's talking about God's power to act. God's power to act and to do something in history. We need to just stop right here and understand something about Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people that will say Jesus is a great prophet. And he was. Scripture says he knew what was in a man he could, I guess to use a vernacular, read people's thoughts. He knew what was going on. He had a prophetic sense about him by, by the Holy Spirit. But that's not really who Jesus was or, or why he came. Him being a prophet doesn't define who he was. Other people will say, well, you know, Jesus was, was a great teacher. And he was. I mean, you read, read his teaching, especially in the gospel, you read the, the Sermon on the, on the, on the Mount. <laughs> the, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, and, and it's incredible, the, the, the ethics, the, the morals, the way he would put things. I mean, Jesus was, was a fabulous teacher, but Jesus really didn't come to teach. Being a teacher didn't define who Jesus was. You see, we can look at something and think we understand it, but completely miss its essential nature. Imagine you'd never seen clay. 
Okay, you've never seen clay and you've never seen steel in your life. And I put this ball of clay in front of you and a steel I-beam in front of you. And I say, okay, what's the difference between clay and steel? And you'd look at that for a while and you say, well, it's obvious. The difference is clay is round and steel is long and thin. Are, are you right? Clay is round. That, that's the difference between clay and steel. Clay is round and steel is long and thin. Are you right? You're all going, this is a trick question, isn't it? Well, yeah, you're, you're kind of right. Sort of right. But you've really missed the essence of clay and steel because the essence of clay and steel is not the shape. I mean, steel can be round. They're, they're called ball bearings. And, you know, I actually got to think about it. How do they make a ball bearing? I'm going to have to YouTube that later. That, you know, so steel can, can be round. Clay, you can, you can make clay long and, and thin. It's not the shape. Clay and steel can make many shapes. If you really want to understand the essence of, of clay and steel, you've got to get into the chemical, contra, uh, uh, the, the, the chemical composition, the, the chemical attributes uh, of it and, and, and steel is, is a metal, it, it's hard. Now it, it can be soft, but it has to be extremely hot for it to be, for, for it to be soft. And, and, and clay is, is not a metal and clay can be hard, but it will never be as hard as steel. And so if you just say, well, clay is round and steel is long, you've completely missed what they're really all about. And that's the problem that many people have when they look at Jesus. They miss his essence. They miss the essential quality that makes him who he is. I mean, was he a great prophet? Yeah, he was a great prophet, but Muhammad's also a great prophet. No respect to anybody, but you look at the stories of Muhammad and it's all about submission, it's all about obedience. In fact, that's what the word Islam means. It means obedience or, or submission. You submit to Islam, you practice Islam, and, and basically you hope for the best. Muhammad told people how to live. But that's not the essence of who Jesus was or what Jesus did. Was Jesus a great teacher? Well, yes, Jesus was a great teacher, but so was Buddha. Buddha was a great teacher that, that focused on enlightenment. He said, you, you need to gain enlightenment. You need to have the right attitude towards life and the right attitude towards suffering and desire. You need to learn to deny your desires and deny your, your ego and, 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 and eventually you will find peace and, and find nirvana. So Buddha basically said, here's what you need to do to do that. He, he told people how to live. But that's not the essence of who Jesus was or what Jesus did. So what's different about Jesus? What's the essence of Jesus that we need to catch? That, that we need to understand if we're really going to grasp who Jesus is? Well, I love the way Tim Keller put it. He said this, Jesus didn't come primarily to tell people what to do. He came primarily to do. That's the difference. Ultimately, Jesus is the powerful arm of the Lord stepping into human history to do something. 
And that's the essential difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religious leader comes and says, hey, listen to me and I'll show you how to connect with God. Do as, do as I say, do this, do that, and, and, and you can be connected to God. But Jesus comes along and he says something different. He says, I'm not just gonna show you how to connect with God. I'm actually going to connect you to God. It's something I'm going to do. I came not to just say, just to say something, I came to do something. You see, that's why the, the truth of Christianity, the, the truth about Jesus is called the gospel. What's, what's the gospel? The, the gospel is the good news. Friends, the gospel is not teaching. The gospel is news. It's not something you have to do. It's something that's already been done. It's something that you have to just believe in because it's the news of the historical, physical events of something that has actually happened in and through Jesus. It's news. It's an event. It's a historical reality. And about 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, Isaiah one of the greatest of all Hebrew prophets prophesies about this servant of the Lord who would come. This servant of the Lord who would come in obscurity and look so ordinary. This servant of the Lord who would be despised and rejected by the very people that should have recognized him and should have been expecting him. Yet this servant who is clearly identified in the New Testament as Jesus would be the powerful arm of the Lord stepping into history not just to say something, not just to teach something, not just to show us how to live, but to actually do something that only he could do. Well, what did Jesus come to do? Let's read these next few verses here in Isaiah 53, and, and friends, this is, this is holy ground. And remember, this now who could Isaiah be talking about? Dr. Mitch Glasser is a, is a scholar who's a Messianic Jew. Messianic Jew is a Jewish person who believes that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, he came to faith in Jesus as an adult and he says that most Jewish people, even those that are deeply religious, are usually unfamiliar with Isaiah 53 because this chapter is not included in the weekly readings that they have in the synagogue. Hundreds of years ago, they, they kind of came up with this rotation of passages of scripture that, that they would read on a weekly basis in the synagogue and they skipped Isaiah 53 because they don't know what to do with it. And Dr. Glasser says, you know, he's not saying that this omission is a conspiracy, but he says it, 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 it is a mystery because Jewish scholars don't know what to do with Isaiah 53. They, they only know that it was written about 700 BC by one of the greatest, most articulate Jewish prophets. But when you read it, who does it unmistakably describe? You know, Jewish scholars and leaders in Jesus' day didn't know what to do with it either. 
They didn't know what to do with Jesus. I mean, they expected a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah, but they wanted a Messiah who was a warrior king who would conquer their enemies and and make Israel great again. That, that That was the slogan, make Israel great again. They wanted someone who would come and and bring them what they value. They wanted someone that would come and bring them wealth and social prestige and political influence and reputation and the good life. That's what they wanted. And yet this passage portrays the Messiah as a warrior king of a different sort. A humble Messiah who would suffer greatly and die a criminal's death. And looking at him, the leaders thought, you know, we thought his trouble were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. We thought he'd brought this on himself. We thought he'd earned this. But why did Jesus die? Was he dying for his own sin? You know, when you read this passage, you can't help but notice the personal pronouns. You go back to to verse four and five. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Friends, Jesus didn't die because of anything he had done. Isaiah is very clear that Jesus died because of what we have done. Not even just what we have done, but because of who we are. Look closely at verse five. It says he was pierced for our rebellion. And it's very interesting that that, that, that word there, use it, some translations say he was wounded. He was pierced. So, so interesting that Isaiah would, would use that word. It's actually an echo of Psalm 22 where it talks about the hands and feet being pierced through as, as Jesus' hands and feet were pierced through when he was nailed to the cross. But what's remarkable is that the Jews didn't practice crucifixion. When the Jews wanted to kill somebody by capital punishment, they would stone them to death. I'm not even sure crucifixion had been invented when Isaiah wrote this prophecy. But he says, he was pierced for our rebellion and he was crushed for our sins. And notice especially the the last word of the line there, crushed for our sins. Older translations use the word iniquities. It comes from a Hebrew word that, that, that means to bend or to twist, to distort. You see, when we think of sins, we immediately think about breaking the rules. We, we think about bad things that we do. We think about breaking the Ten Commandments. You know, you sin, it's because you've, you've stolen something. You know, it's about stealing or lying or lusting or, or, or being angry and mean, you know, just kind of being a miserable person. Sin is breaking the rules. And yeah, sin is breaking the rules, but it's actually far deeper than that. It's not just that sin is breaking the rules, It's that sin has broken you. If we could put that slide up. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin has broken 
you. Sin has bent you, twisted you, distorted you. And you know when something gets bent, sometimes you just can't unbend it? Have you ever bent a paperclip and tried to get it back in the right shape or, 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 or bent a, a nail and you know you, you try and strain it but the nail's lost its strength and it's, you just can't get it right. It's just never the same. We had a window screen in our house that needed to be fixed and so Aileen took it into the glass shop uh, this week and they fixed it for, for free. It was really great of them. But getting back into the car, somehow she jammed it and she bent the frame. She was so ticked. She was just like, ah, can't believe I've done this because once a light metal frame like that gets a kink in it, I mean, have you ever tried to straighten one of those things out? You, you, you can't straighten it out. It's, it's like, and, and then if you start to straighten, bend it back, then it, then it just kind of gets weak and maybe it begins to break and, 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 and there's just that, that bend in it that you can't get out. There's this distortion there that, that you can't undo. And scripture says, that's what's wrong with our souls. We're not just sinful people who do sinful stuff. We're sinful people because deep down in the heart of us, we're all just a little bit bent. We're all just a, a little bit twisted. There's a distortion there. The people that God created us to be, the people that God wants us to be, has been irreparably marred deep down on the inside of us. And, and friends, you can be a good person. You can work your hardest to be kind and to be caring. And you can actually be a very wonderful person who does all kinds of good things. You can keep the rules. But ultimately, there's something bent. There's still something twisted about us, way down deep on the inside that we can't fix. In fact, the prophet goes on to say, he puts it like this, all of us like sheep, we've strayed. We've left God's path to follow our own. It's saying basically that, hey, you know what? We, we wanna be our own shepherds. We wanna choose our own path. It's like there's this internal microchip in every human heart that says, I wanna be my own boss. I want to live my own life. I want to be my, my own king. I want to be my own God. And that's the bentness, the, the twistedness, the distortion of our souls. And the prophet says, yet the Lord has laid on him the sins. And, and, and that verse there, or that word in verse six is the same word that he used in verse five to talk about the bentness, the, the, the twistedness, the distortion. It says that the Lord has laid on him the bentness, the twistedness, the distortion of us all. See friends, Jesus didn't just come as a prophet. He didn't just come as a teacher. He came to do something. He came to take upon himself your bentness, your twistedness. I'm gonna ask our servers to get ready and we're gonna celebrate communion reflecting on who Jesus is and what he's done in just a moment. I'm gonna ask our worship team if they would come back and, and just get ready to, to lead us in a song. 
If you've studied art history, you'll know the name Rembrandt. He was a, a Dutch master painter in the 17th century and is considered one of the greatest visual artists in history. Uh, one of his paintings, though, is, is kind of controversial. It's called The Raising of the Cross, and, and I don't know how well you can see that, but uh, that's, that's the image. It's the picture of Jesus being crucified and, and them raising the cross, and what's controversial about it is that Rembrandt painted himself into the picture. He's the dude there in the blue hat. That's Rembrandt. And you know what, if you actually look closely, you can also see your face in the crowd. Well, perhaps not really, but that's the intent. Rembrandt did with the brush what Isaiah did with words, helping us not only see Jesus, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, but helping us see us who we are, what we are really like at our essence. And friends, yes, Jesus really was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his sorrows, they were our sorrows. He didn't deserve them, but he willingly took them. He actually comes to us and takes them off of our shoulders. He actually comes to us and removes them. We can't get them off ourselves. It's not like we come and go, here, here, Jesus. No, he comes and he takes them. In a way that's almost impossible to understand, Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross. And Isaiah proclaims that Jesus didn't suffer and die because he was guilty. He suffered and died because we were guilty. And Jesus says, that's what I do. It's my personal mission to bear away other people's guilt, to bear away other people's shame and twistedness. On the cross, it was my personal mission to be crushed under the unbearable guilt of others. And I do this because I love guilty people. I love twisted people. I love you. And if you will trust me, if you will believe in me, if you'll believe in what I have done, I will take your guilt and I will take your sin. I will take your bentness on myself and I will give you my righteousness, my goodness. Worship team is going to lead us in that song that we just sang and our servers are going to distribute the emblems. And if you're here this morning, I would encourage you just to take a cup that represents the blood of Jesus that was shed to take a, a cracker that represents his body and just hold them in a moment. We're gonna read some more scripture. We're gonna pray together. But let's reflect on Jesus. Reflect on who he is and what he's done.